Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. Today, I have Mark Kresslins on the show. I got a message while at work from a mutual friend, Joshua Smith, and he recommended me to seek out Mark. And so I sent Mark a friend request. I stalked him on Facebook <laughs> to make sure, but I want to tell y'all right now, if y'all are annoyed by me, you're going to be more annoyed by Mark as well, <laughs> because he is no nonsense. He's going to punch you in the mouth with the truth. And this is kind of what we're doing with the project. This is kind of what we're doing. We want people to question their current situation as statist or their, their current situation in this world as Christians. And Mark is very clear and very blunt about what he believes. And I love it. We have to be no nonsense sometimes. I mean, we're going to upset some folks with what we're saying. That's okay. We love you, but we're going to tell you the truth. And this is why, and I love what Mark has to say on his, on his own post, because he's going to love you, but he's going to tell you the truth. You may not like it, but it is what it is. And I love how he approaches all of this. Before we get into your article, I want you to give us some background of yourself, and then I want to talk to you about your journey to anarchy. Well, I'm 61 years old. I'm married to a, my beautiful bride of going on 33 years, Patty. We have together uh, four adult children and six grandchildren. Probably the most important defining event of my life happened on November 3rd, 1977, while stationed in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, my uh, uh, squad leader, uh, Ted Bullard, was known to be the Christian on our in our um, squadron. And uh, he invited me over to his house. And over a three-day period, he shared the gospel with me. And I was very clear that my sin had separated me from a holy God. And that if I did not uh, reconcile that with a holy God, then uh, my future would be an eternity separate from him in hell. And so on November 3rd, 1977, right around 9 o'clock at night, I remember getting on my knees in my barracks and doing the best I could to pray a prayer of repentance and as best I could. And I didn't know much, but I knew enough to say I was sorry. And I, and I trusted Jesus as my savior, got up and from my knees at that point and, and have the last 43 years tried to faithfully follow him, uh, stumbling along as, as we all do, but really having an eye towards uh, being a devoted follower, somebody he would look back at and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So for the next uh, 43 years, that's kind of what I've been. And, and it's led me into so many odd places, uh, all the way back to 19, in the mid-1980s, working on Capitol Hill for two conservative GOP members of Congress, a guy from upstate New York, George Wortley, and then eventually as a senior legislative assistant for a guy from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so I got a kind of a bird's eye view of just how government actually works versus how most Christians think it works. 
and or have been told that it works. So I have this kind of strange vantage point uh, that, that contributes to some of the things that I discuss on, on Facebook. Uh, but then I left Capitol Hill, married my wife, ran a couple of businesses. And then in 2008, we had our first uh, financial collapse. It was really building, of course, but real pivot point was 2008. I remember looking at my wife and talking to her and saying, well, I've got to get re-engaged. And so we re-engaged the political process. We ended up selling our business, selling our home and moving here to Oklahoma because it was a, there was nothing where we were living at the time in Maryland. There was no way there was going to be substantive political change there in Maryland. And so we decided to pick a place better where uh, political change might be more um, effectuated, and we came here. Over the past, you know, decade plus, uh, I've been engaged in what I'd like to call political mission work, and uh, and have been out here trying to persuade Christians to think better. You know, in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And uh, unfortunately, what I have seen and observed, and to some degree practiced in my own life was a real laziness of thinking. And, um, and so I've really been trying these last decade or so to, in a political sense, encourage people that we need as followers of Jesus Christ to obey that verse and become better thinkers. And unfortunately, as you, as you know, Craig, we have switched, we have kind of swapped experientialism with intellectualism and we have in our minds in the within the christian ecclesia of course within our our habits our habits are far more experiential than they are intellectual and so we we devolve if you will as followers of jesus christ into what we feel about something you know, I feel God told me to do something or God said to me when, of course, there's not really a lot of evidence that you know, I've been walking with him fairly faithfully for 43 years. And I've never once heard God's voice ever. Now, I can read his, I can read the Bible and I hear his voice all the time. Every single day I can wake up in the morning and read his word and I can hear his beautiful voice. And then throughout the day, my decision is whether or not I want to obey that voice. <laughs> and that, that's where it tends to break down for me. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when we swapped, um, you know, intellectualism or an appreciation of the mind, and we almost kind of reject it because there's so many Christians today that reject the Enlightenment, and they think it was all filled. And there's obviously bad parts of the Enlightenment, but there were so many good things in the Enlightenment as well. My gosh, that's where John Locke came from, and 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 Montesquieu, and these guys that that created the philosophical framework for the very form of government we have today. Um, so, well, yeah, you have to be cautious about um, the Enlightenment. At the same point, you can't reject it. But many Christians I know reject the Enlightenment and, and say, well, you know, it really becomes this kind of experiential Christianity. Uh, a, a friend of mine's professor um, during his Ph.D., Dr. Uh, Mark Knoll, who now taught at Wheaton College, but now is up at Notre Dame. He wrote a book back in the early 90s, I think. Um, it was titled The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. 
And the subtitle was the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of one. And he's right. There's not much of one. And so that makes the Christian community very vulnerable to jingoism, to hegemony, uh, to conflating, you know, America with Israel. Before you know it, you know, God created America. The Constitution is a nearly divine document. And all, all these kind of nonsensical ideas emerge. Um, and well-meaning, and I truly mean this, well-meaning Christians um, will hear a patriotic sermon and swoon, their heart will beat a little faster, and they will believe that that uh, God shed His grace on thee, and and unfortunately, in a political sense, that makes them extremely vulnerable to marginalization. And guess what's happened? <laughs> They've been totally margin mar marginalized. They have no power at all. And now we hear here we are in you know 2020, and most Christians are horrifyingly coming to the conclusion that, uh, my gosh, we're in trouble. Well, the trouble really began 40 years ago. Um, it's not new. It's, it's, it's when we, as Christians, accepted the premise that America is a Christian nation, that the Constitution is near divine, that the, you know, God sends uh, Cyruses to us in the form of Reagan and now Trump. Uh, and we get this all kind of mixed up in our mind. <laughs> we kind of get it all, it all gets kind of jumbled together. Uh, jingoism or, or hyper patriotism and hegemony, a kind of superiority complex that we have as Americans. And then we try to blend that with Christianity when God through the apostle Paul tells us your citizenship is in heaven. And this is right during the time. Nero is really persecuting the church in 64 AD. Um, so anyways, it's kind of a long story, but that's uh, that's my background. It's, it's a rather strange weaving of backgrounds from business to politics and uh, moves from Maryland to here. But here I am uh, in Oklahoma continuing to try to push the ball forward. I love that. And you said something that <laughs> really resonates with me too is about American patriot or you can hear a patriotic sermon yeah. and it stir the Christian's heart for some reason. Mm -hmm. And looking back, that was me. I spent a lot of time in Southern Baptist churches. And I remember sitting through, I don't remember if it was 4th of July, Memorial Weekend or something, but they had the flags on the stage. They were honoring the, the veterans and basically saluting the state and at the time i was i was all about it we even stood up and did the pledge of allegiance in church and you asked me this before we started recording about how we came up with the with the name the bad roman my friend don who suggested the name when we think about the christians in the early church they had no interest in the state mm -hmm. none but now and the, the entanglement with Christians and the state right now is disgusting to me. And that's kind of how we started with this project, because we have to get away from that. Our allegiance, our, our allegiance is to Christ, period, not to the state. Yes, yes. And for some reason, we've gotten so far gone from that. Amen. And I don't know why. I don't know 
why. I've talked to Keith Giles on this show. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he has a book called Jesus Untangled, and it's a fantastic book, and it's something that Christians need to read. I remember when, when Barack Obama got elected, and I was still a statist, I was thinking, man, this they are treating him like the Messiah. Mm-hmm. The come, you know, the another coming of Jesus. But I think Trump supporters have trumped that right, right. to the point where they are so dug in, so they're doubling down to support this guy. And this is kind of how my journey to anarchy started, is because I could not get on board with him when he was nominated because everything he was saying was disgusting. And you mentioned the constitution. Mm-hmm. He sat right there with Mike Pence sitting right next to him, said the constitution is not always relevant. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> the Republicans are supposed to be about the constitution. This is their mantra, right? No, bull it's baloney. They don't care. He's got a special letter by his name. It doesn't matter any of his policies. He's got a letter by his name and Christians run to support this man. I don't understand it. You can go on a Franklin Graham Facebook post. I don't recommend it, but I get on there because I'm snarky to a fault. The, 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 the amount of worship for the state on these posts by so-called Christians is baffling to me. I don't get it. Well, this is part of the problem, and this is the allure of experientialism, is that when you can erect golden calves, what do we see all the way back into the days of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments? What is Aaron doing down at the bottom? He's creating a golden calf, and there's something in us. There's something in the fallenness of man that we get caught up in the shiny object of the moment. And it's just easy. And if you're not discerning, if you haven't developed the discerning skills, which I would argue most Christians, because they have there's such biblical illiteracy out there, and there's almost no training when it comes to exegesis and hermeneutics, um, you are vulnerable to the shiny object. And the shiny object, in, in our case, certainly with the emergence of the religious right in the late 70s, early 80s, was the Constitution. It became the new shiny object. And so before you know it, you start hearing everybody talking about the Constitution. You begin um, to hear Christians and pastors using it in their sermons. Now, in most cases, 95% of people can't even describe what all seven articles are. They don't really know the Constitution. They know the word Constitution. But if I was to ask them, what is Article 6 about? What is Article 4 about? They really couldn't describe what, it, what it's about. They couldn't understand the purpose of it. Usually they've heard some kind of a sermon on a July 4th, or they've heard Rush Limbaugh or, you know, Family Research Council throw out the word and say, that's not constitutional. You know, they'll <laughs> say something like that. And, and then they'll repeat it because they don't really, they trust the leaders. They trust, you know, I have a chapter in a book that I wrote, um, I, I talk about the need for new generals because our generals are horrible. We've got the worst generals on the planet. And but human nature is, by God's design, I think we kind of see this in Romans 12, where we begin to see a list of spiritual giftedness, and in in that context, you see the gift of leadership and 
God, through the Apostle Paul, writes that we should lead well. That, that if you got to get to leadership, you're supposed to lead well or fervently. And so it's, there's a reason why that gift is mixed in with a lot of other gifts, because not everybody has the gift of leadership. Some people have the gift of exhortation. Some people have the gift of hospitality and service and works and on and on and on. Well, if we were all leaders, and obviously uh, God would have told us that was his plan for us, and that doesn't mean we can't lead in hospitality and lead in exhortation and things like that. But there's a group of people that are leaders, and human nature kind of suggests that people are going to follow leaders. Well, we happen to have a very horrible group of leaders right now. So they say something like, well, that's not constitutional. The average person listening to their patriot pastor or their or their uh, Rush Limbaugh or somebody on Family Research Council or some other radio program, they say that's not constitutional, and they just repeat it. Now, I come along and I say, well, exactly what isn't constitutional about that? Well, they don't know how to answer that because they're not even sure what isn't constitutional about it. They just heard their general say it's not constitutional. It became the shiny object, Craig. It became this shiny object for Christians that had some interest in politics and were sitting there watching the culture devolve around them. And I'm 61, so I saw... I, I was young in the 60s. I came of age in the 70s, lived through the 80s, had family through the 90s and into today. So I've kind of seen this whole transition from the 60s chaos to today. And and I've seen, if, if as I've heard somebody once say, if, if you told me in 1971 that by 2020 we will have murdered legally 63 million babies, I would have said, you're crazy. There's no chance that's going to happen. But here we are, 2020, we've murdered 63 million babies. So I've watched this whole thing decline. And those of us who are Christians, God superna- I mean, uh, uh, sovereignly puts us in, into uh, America, these, these United States. We're, we're grasping for answers. What, if we're a Christian nation, what I've been saying to pledge one nation under God, indivisible my whole life. How, how can this be happening? You know, if this is, if any of this is true, that my history uh, that I was taught about this Christian nation, if it's true, why is this happening? And so we then start trying to counter it with, that's not constitutional. Well, why? Well, I don't know why, but it's just not. <laughs> it's like because most people just learned a word. Well, it's something they heard somebody else say that. Yes. If you go, you know who Mark Levin is. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, this guy. They the Fox News uses him as their constitutional talking head. He is so wrong about the Constitution, though. I know. Because I I did a very extreme study on the Constitution once Donald Trump was nominated because I wanted to understand the Constitution, what the founders meant by it. I mean, I went and dug and dug and dug the meaning behind it, not what the words say. I want to know what the original intent was. And you see this going on right now with, at the time of this recording, Donald Trump sending FBI agents into other states, unwelcomed, uninvited. And I've I've been in so many debates in the past two or three weeks about this with conservatives loosely (laughs) <laughs> use the term loosely, conservatives, but it's not unconstitutional to them because it's okay that Donald Trump's doing it. 
And you can go to Article 4, Section 4 of the United States Constitution, and it says explicitly that they must be invited. It, the, the text is clear. Well, what about the some act that Congress passed? The, an act does not change the Constitution. You can't change the Constitution because Congress passes an act. You know what? That act is unconstitutional. If you want to change the Constitution, let's do an Article 5. Let's, let's, let's do it. But you cannot change it with an act from Congress. It just does not happen that way. And I've been so frustrated with Republicans lately with this. And I don't, as an anarchist now, I understand I, and I fully agree with it's a piece of paper. It's ineffective. But if you're going to claim to be a constitutionalist, let's follow it. Don't make exceptions just because your guy's in office. Let's be consistent. This is what I'm looking for is consistency. And I cannot tell you, I had a, I made a post on Facebook about this. And I think we had almost 300 comments on it. Mm-hmm. Me going back and forth with, <laughs> with Republicans on this. And I don't know how many times I was called a moron. Mm-hmm. Oh, I understand. I, understand. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you what the Constitution says, and I'm the moron. <laughs> Come on. This is very, it's clear as day. Stop making excuses for your guy because Barack Obama is not in office now. I, I, I have no interest in, in supporting any candidate. I don't care if libertarian, Republican, Democrat. I don't care. They all suck. They have an a, a agenda behind, and I've, and I've said this more than once on this show, I'm very suspicious of anybody seeking political power. Oh, sure. I did it myself. I was, before I moved to Memphis, I was in serious talks with the Republican Party about running for state legislator. No, oh, wow. And thankfully, I got a new job offer in Memphis, and it took me away from all that. I mean, like, God's like, no, <laughs> you're not doing this. Uh, yeah. We're going to give you a better option. Right. Right. And so here we are. Now we're talking about the bad Roman. Now we're talking, as anarchists, we follow Christ. No king but Christ. Stop following a politician. They are actively stealing from you. They're actively murdering people that you'll never meet. And I I was talking to Kevin Craig on one of our episodes, and I told him, I said, the United States government to me is the largest terrorist organization that this world's ever seen, in my opinion. They are more of a threat to us than anybody in Iran or Iraq, Afghanistan, Russia, China. Our United States government is more of a threat to us than they are. And this is particularly difficult to even have these kinds of conversations because, in a way, political pragmatism has led to Christians being morally relativistic. And either we believe in absolute transcendent truths or we don't. It, 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 that, that is one of the few binary choices I will ever allow in my thinking. So either God said, thou shall not murder, and thou shall not steal. That's a binary choice. You either do or you don't one of those two. There's not, thou shall steal, thou shall not steal unless government authorizes the theft of taxes. <laughs> he does nothing to qualify it. He just says, thou shall not steal. 
And yet, Craig, I have heard a thousand times in my life in various formats that I've been in, well, I'm a Christian, a somebody who is devoted to Jesus Christ saying, well, I'm okay with some taxation. And that is moral relativism. We have to, as Christians, reject that in favor of obedience to God. Now, the minute you get on the turf of taxation, inevitably, you have to be an anarchist. You have to go there. Because I can never use force as a Christian to take from somebody. I can't. When I was young, you know, growing up in, in public education, there was this real move towards the introduction of moral relativism into our thinking. And so the classic, there's 12 people in a boat and three of them are old and you have no food and water, but you got enough, you got just the food and water to survive for X number of days and you're running out of those days. Who do you start throwing into the water first? Who do you murder first in order to let the majority of the people in the lifeboat survive? Well, in a, in a young mind like mine, at that time, I'm actually thinking it through. Well, who, who, who would be the least, you know, beneficial? Let's throw grandma overboard because she probably would want to jump overboard anyways because she loves, she loves. Yeah. So let's just help her overboard. <laughs> but what, what kind of deceptive seed was planted in my brain at that point? It was, there are no absolute truths. Truths are relative to the situation. Well, I'm okay with some taxation. Why? Well, because I like roads, because I like military, I like um, uh, laws, I like police officers. So I'm okay with some theft. Really, if we could change, truly change the word taxation to theft, you would have Christians having to say, I am okay with some theft. Now, they immediately indict themselves when they say that. Immediately, before a holy God, they indict themselves. And the problem is we've lost our sensitivity to sin. We've lost, we have a, cav, a cavalier nature about sin. Um, my wife and I have been involved in crisis marriage counseling for quite some time. And inevitably, when we encounter a couple that's in big trouble, it all, it, it all sources back to a comfortability with sin in their marriage, whether they're believers or not believers. They grew comfortable with wiping each other out and they would justify it with all sorts of different, you know, reasons why they felt they could do it. But when you hold up the lens of scripture to that argument, suddenly you're indicted. Now, the only question really is, am I going to be humble and obey or am I just going to be me? And I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to obey. I'm going to. So I make. With God's absolute truths, I do turn them into binary choices in my Facebook posting and things like that. Not because I'm trying to be holier than thou. My gosh, I, I have something I practice every single day in my life. I've done it for 40 some odd years. There's not a time in my day that I don't say this at some point in my day. Lord, I am so sorry you had to see me do that. <laughs> whatever, whatever that is. You know? Every day. Every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't do. I feel so much. So I don't ever ask somebody to do something I'm myself not willing to do. And so when I create a binary choice in my own life, Mark, did you obey that? And I have to be honest and say, 
No, I didn't, Lord. I only have one option. Well, I have two. I mean, I can just keep going. Or I can say, Patty, my wife, I'm sorry. Kids, I'm sorry. Whatever it is, I'm sorry. And then I I go to God. Lord, I'm so sorry you had to see me do that. Because I am. (laughs) Let me ask you something. Do you... Do you beat yourself up over the stuff like this? Because it's something that I I do. Like I beat myself up over things like, especially when when we're getting into arguments on online, on social media. Mm -hmm. And I try with all that is in me not to be a total snark, Mm -hmm. but some of these people make it very difficult for me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So, and it, it, at the end, I was like, man, you shouldn't have said that to him. That is not the way. You just tell them the truth and move on. But I can't, for some reason, I can't. That's <laughs> it. I, I, because I, in my mind, what I'm saying is right. Yeah. But when, you're, when somebody comes back and calls you a moron or an idiot, hey, I'm the, one of the biggest idiots out there. I get it. Mm-hmm. But who are you talking to? You are defending the state and as christians we're not supposed to be doing that you can go all the way back to the early church and i'm talking about prior to constantine past what we have in the bible to me i don't i don't know if you are the same but i don't see any gray area in anything to a fault like it's probably one of my biggest faults i'm everything's black and white to me it is what it is Mm. but with God, I think he's the same way. It is what it is. He said it. That's what we're supposed to do. Or is it just me? Because I I get so frustrated with people. But like I said, to a fault, I don't see gray area. So and this is a great conversation, Greg. I'm glad you raised this. And, and so part of this is, our, why do we learn exegesis and hermeneutics? And, and actually, exegesis we do all the time anyways. It's just part of who we are. We we understand, like, to take, for example, a, sport, a, a football game. Uh, we exegete football games all the time. We go to who was sick, who was on injured reserve that day. Um, what was the weather like in the stadium? Was it cold? Was it hot? Was it windy? Was it dry? You know, we, we, we analyze a football game and we exegete it. We take into, into consideration all the context at home. Was it a home field advantage? What was the weather? Who were we playing? All this. And we, and we distill from that why something happened. Why, why was the outcome as it was? We have this natural ability to execute. We do it all the time in our businesses and our marriages and our, in our family. Unfortunately, we don't do it in God's word very much. And, and because we don't know how to execute very well, we wander into error and we take things, um, from God's word and then try to force them into a current context when really God may have just been telling us in, in a literary format or a, uh, using a, a literary genre, a story about how he interacted with the world on this particular day. And it really has no direct application to us other than we marvel that God parted the Red Sea. You know, I don't ever wake up in the morning expecting God to part the traffic or whatever the modern day, you know, <laughs> nomenclature would be for that. I don't I don't think that's going to happen. I just say, wow, what it must have been like to be there and see God, the God of the universe, part the sea. It must have been unbelievable to see that. And so um, 
so when we try to take passages of scripture and 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 then force them into a contemporary context they don't always fit one to one so i am absolutely a defender of god's transcendent absolute truth when i know for certain it's god's absolute transcendent truth that is applicable to all people in all times in all cultures that's not the entire bible in other words let me give you an example of that why don't you um wash people's feet when they come into your home anymore. In Luke 7, what is one of the criticisms that Jesus has of Simon? Look at this woman who came in and bathed my feet in her tears, and yet you haven't washed my feet yet. Well, why don't we? Why don't we do that anymore? Because we know intuitively, culturally, if you come into my house, I don't need to wash your feet. You haven't been walking in dust. Um, Why don't I go into every Christian church service and see women wearing head coverings. Well, because we intuitively know that that was a cultural context there, and Paul's actually dealing with a lot of other issues related to head coverings. But because we don't know exegesis well, Romans 13 is the classic example right now in our world, political world. Um, people are just totally stumbling over this passage and coming up with all kinds of strange theologies because they refuse to accept that maybe Paul was just writing to a young church in Rome uh, about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ under emperor at that time, Nero, but just previous to that, Claudius. What does it mean? Well, it means that, yeah, you're in a, you're, you don't vote for Caesar there. <laughs> there is no annual election for the emperor, you know, where, where you get to choose your leader. You're under this leader. It has a lot more to do with the Jews who got thrown out uh, by Emperor Claudius uh, a few years back because they were troublemakers. And the, the, the initial church in Rome was made up of Gentiles and Jews. Why, right. why did Priscilla and Aquila end up in, in Corinth? Because they got thrown out by Claudius. Well, people don't know that about that particular letter that Paul wrote. And so they um, try to take a... A, a, uh, a letter Paul's writing into a historical particularity, and then they try to expand it to every other form of government on the planet. And guess what breaks down? All your logic breaks down because God wasn't speaking in a doctrinal sense to all cultures and all people at all time because he didn't even describe the form of government. Paul didn't even describe the form of government. He said just, hey, listen, all authorities from God, God's sovereignty totally intact there. All, all authority, whether I, whether I create it or whether I allow it to emerge, is under my sovereignty. So everything comes from God. Good government punishes evil, rewards good. Submit to the form of government that you're in and then pay your taxes. It's not any more complicated than that. Then we try to force that into a representative republic, which is what we have, where the final human authority in our government is us. And the entire passage breaks down. How do I obey you, Craig? You're the final human authority, so am I. How do we submit to one another? These are elected officials we have. These are not emperors that take over and then command their people. We have the right to revolution in our country. Right. Paul was not writing to a church that had the right to revolution in Rome. These people were subjects of an emperor. And, and having just been uh, made aware, or he was aware of 
the uh, Jews having been tossed out of Rome because they were troublemakers, <laughs> it's easy to deduce from this letter that uh, Paul is telling them, trust God. He has you there. Cool your jets. Don't be like the Jews so you get thrown out. Don't be troublemakers. Pay your taxes and share the gospel. You know, go out and, and follow Jesus Christ. We then contort it and do all these mental gymnastics, and we try to say, well, you know, there's some laws we can obey and others we don't have to obey. And But then John MacArthur will come out and say, no, 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 we got to submit to everything the government does. And it was probably a rebellion to Romans 13 when we uh, went, uh, declared independence, and maybe it was, but God let it happen. He did. We can't argue that we're here, right? We can't, we can't. We can't say, well, no, it's not. <laughs> so it's like sometimes we say things that, that provoke almost ridiculous responses. But uh, so MacArthur tells everybody we have to obey everything the government says, failing to realize that the, the foundational principle of the United States is that when government doesn't secure unalienable rights, it is the right and the duty of the people to alter, abolish, or throw it off. That's written in the Declaration of Independence. That there is there is no United States without that without that sentence. You know, there's no, and we get it all jumbled up in our mind, and we take Romans 13 and try to weave it into it, and we end up with some new modern theology of well, there's some laws we can obey and others we don't have to because when Acts 5:29 is about the gospel, clear case. If they're gonna, if the United States government ever tried to tell me to not preach the gospel, I would totally be in rebellion against them. I'm going to go share the gospel. And if you kill me for it, fine. But, you know, in the MacArthur model of submission in all cases, I guess I always have to wear my seatbelt. I got to put my mask on. I got to, whatever, whatever it is, because government told me to do it. So therefore, with his interpretation of Romans 13, I always have to submit to it, even though in our form of government, the final human authority is us, the people. It doesn't make sense. So to your question, I, I know I'm, I'm, my apologies for taking a long beat. Oh, I love this. I will obey God where I'm told clearly that this is a point to stand on. So I, I break God's word into literary formats, roughly tentative. But where God issues a command, um, I am going to obey that. You shall have no other gods before me. So I'm not going to put the flag on my stage if I'm a pastor. Of a church. I'm not going to create a false god. I'm not going to make America the, the, the pledge and the anthem and all that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to lead people into believing that's something that they should be focusing on, especially when it's in conflict to to God's word. And there's no argument that the United States government is in massive conflict with God's word. So I'm not going to ask people to honor it. In fact, I'm going to tell them the exact opposite. So where God issues a clear command, go and make disciples. I'm not. That's for all people, for all times, for all cultures. It's not modified by where I live and, and what culture I'm in and when I'm born. I am to go and make disciples. I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and love my neighbor as myself. I'm never violating those, never going to compromise those. When it comes to principles um, that we see throughout the book of Proverbs, we see in the teachings and the epistles, Greet one another with a holy kiss. I met with five, four men this morning. There's no chance I'm kissing them when I walk in. There's no chance. <laughs> I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, they were just giving each other handshakes. 
I know. I'm not going to get it from David, I promise you. I'm not doing it. (laughs) But I'm not going to wash your feet either. I don't have a foot fetish, and I don't have any interest in washing. So I don't like feet. I don't like my own feet. I'm not. I, I'm not going to wash somebody else's feet. Get them away from me. They're nasty. You know, these are principles, and then you have, of course, Paul's opinion on things. Occasions where an opinion is issued. So on the thing, I'm going to go to the mat on doctrine. I'm never violating. I'm never going to. Uh, I'm never going to waver from God's commands. I'm going to uh, take the principles that we see throughout Scripture, and I'm going to apply them where it makes sense. Always being mindful that I want to be winsome, I want to be generous, I want to be gracious, I want to I want to be like um, Jesus when he talks to Simon in Luke seven, after everybody's judging the woman who's washing his feet uh, with her tears and drying them off with her hair and anointing his head with her oil. They all know she's the town prostitute, and they're all saying. Doesn't Jesus know who that woman is? And of course he knows who it is. And then he rebukes Simon at the end and says, he who's, uh, uh, he who's forgiven much loves much. Right. Well, I'm going to be that love much person because I've been forgiven much. So even on Facebook, I don't get into heated debates with people. I don't, I don't, I don't let them go that way because I've been forgiven much. I understand the other guy on the side of, on the other end of that keyboard probably just doesn't know, just doesn't know. So I can give a lot of grace and a lot of, and, 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 and you know, try to answer questions as best I can. And, and, and Craig, allow me one more second, if you would. Um, I, I have a strategy on my Facebook page that I use and I've used for years. And, and it's really a kind of a phishing uh, strategy. I, my, my initial post on my Facebook page are always provocative. They're going to throw out some, I'm bashing something. I'm going, to, I'm going to attack some idea. Now, I'm doing that because I'm hoping that people will hear them and say, well, I don't like what he said, so I'm going to comment. I'm going to, uh, as curious, I've never heard that before. Um, and I'm doing something to get some initial reaction. And then within the comment structure on Facebook, I'm just a, I'm trying to be a teacher. I'm trying to be a professor, a caring professor who says, let me help you think that through. Here's what I've learned here. And I, I, I will always self-deprecate because you know what? I didn't know a lot of this stuff either. I didn't. I had I had other people come in and help me learn these things. So when I go to the Constitution. I don't I don't get into many constitutional arguments anymore because I know there's some major flaws in it that most people just don't know. And guess what? I didn't know them until I knew them either. Right. So it's very easy for me to be humble and say, listen, friend, let me help you understand. Number one, there are three major interpretive models for the constitution. There's pragmatism, there's originalism, and there's textualism. And you know what? They didn't codify any of them in the constitution of what to use. And you know what? In April of, of um, 1789, uh, when the first Senate committee formed, you know what they did right out of the gate? They began to expand federal power with the Judiciary Act of 1789. They, Section 25 began to require the states to appeal to the Supreme Court for final adjudication in some cases that had to do with federal law within the state. Well, they immediately, immediately, even though they promised during the ratification debates, oh, you don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> We're not going to take over the states. 
we're not going to swallow the states. Immediately after the ratification, they begin taking over the states. Immediately. So I, 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 but I didn't know any of that until I knew it, Craig. And so I can be humble right. and patient with people on my page because I recognize they probably just heard their patriot pastor say it's not constitutional. Well, you handle that way better than I do, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I need to get to that point. I need to get to the point where I can be humble and, and, and not be so snarky to people. It's one of my faults, you know, and you talk about the constitution, it was violated immediately from the very first president. You go look at the whiskey rebellion, huge violation of the United States constitution, but try and explain that to somebody that does not know the constitution, but wants to spout off about the constitution is very frustrating to me. If you don't understand it, don't talk about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I, I do. And, and I think, you know, I was telling these friends this morning, so I, I, I try to look at that. I try to remember that story in Luke 7, and, and that really has affected my life. But two other verses really affect my life in this regard as well. And they're very common verses. We've all heard them a hundred times. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and then in matthew 5 greater love is no man than this he'd be willing to lay his life down for his friends and so I, I look at those verses craig and i think okay god is perfectly just and perfectly loving he's the only being that can do both of those perfectly all the time i am a fallen man i am incapable of being perfectly just and perfectly loving. Ask my kids. They'll be glad to tell you how times, how many times I erred on the side of justice <laughs> and probably shouldn't because I'm an imperfect fallen man. I can't do it. So if I'm going to err one um, on one side of that equation, I'm going to err on love. Now, let me just briefly explain why. I accept the premise I'm a fallen man. My mind is fallen. I can't perfectly understand every situation I'm in. So given the situation, given the, given that as a backdrop, when I'm on Facebook with somebody and they're wanting to argue or they're wanting to attack me, um, which they do. I mean, I get the same kind of uh, uh, claims <laughs> about my intellect that you do. You're, you're a moron. You're stupid. You're an idiot. So, but I understand at the other end of that keyboard is an image bearer of God. They are there. There's a human being there typing that at me right now. Right. And then I back up to, John 3, 16. And I think, in my, I think, okay, let's go back to the garden. God tells man to do, just don't do this thing. And they do it. They sin. And what does he immediately begin to do John in, in Genesis 3? He begins the work of redemption. He's talking about the coming one who's going to bruise the ankle, bruise the foot. And so right. we see this. But now what motivates? What motivates that God, this God that we worship and we follow, we, 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 we claim we're devoted to. What motivates them to do it? For God so loved the world. Love. Love motivates him to bring, a, create a path that some of his creation who would be humble enough to repent of their sins can be forgiven and be restored to a right relationship. So I, I look at this and I say, all right, the balance scales, justice, love. 
I'm going to tilt it towards love because that motivated God to redeem me. Now here you and I are talking and we both benefited from that love because he redeemed us. He forgave us of our sins. That's an incredible story. I mean, it's if, if, you, mm -hmm. if you really just think about it for a second, it's incredible because I don't think that any of us have any real understanding of what he Amen. means when he says love. You know what I'm saying? So I, and I agree with you. I mean, we, we, I, I want to err on the side of love as well. Exactly. I totally. I, I don't think we understand completely what he's talking about though. I mean, I mean, he went to a cross for us. No. How many times are you going to see a person lay down their own life for you? You know what I mean? So I don't think we understand it. I don't, right. I want to, and I don't think we'll fully understand it until we're standing with him. Yeah. You know, and then, then we will be able to grasp that kind of love, under, that understanding of what he's talking about. And mm -hmm. we, we, we need to get to that point. Yeah, right. And it's a day, it's a daily struggle. I mean, if anybody thinks being a Christian is easy, <laughs> I got news for you, man. It's not, this is, it's, 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 it it's difficult in our carnal mind, in our human nature to follow the words of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, and we have, but it's a daily thing. I mean, it's, and it's something that we're going to struggle with every day until yeah. he comes back or he brings us home. Whichever one happens first. Oh my. So, I mean, but I'm okay with that struggle. I mean, I'd rather be struggling with that than, than a lot of other things, to be honest with you. Hey folks, Greg here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors have no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. Um. I want you to give me just a, a summary of how you became an anarchist because with this project, I try to ask this with everybody I have on the show because your perspective is going to be different than mine. And somebody that's listening to this, well, that may be on the fence about it, maybe what you can say may resonate with them more than what I'm going to say. So give me a little, give me a little summary of what. Or, or how your path to anarchy happened? I mean, what, what what happened? Yeah, well, you know, I because of my background in politics, you know, like I had followed the conventional route, GOP voting candidate, voting for the lesser two evils. I embraced all of it, and but all the Christians I was around were just about taking power. But that never sat right. It didn't. It didn't, and and I couldn't justify it biblically. And so I'm constantly running into these, you know, at the same time I'm. I'm learning about Locke and I'm learning about Thomas Hobbes and I'm learning about Hume and all these great thinkers from the Enlightenment who had a profound impact on our on the formation of our form of government. But then I ran across a lot of troubling things that our supposed great country did with slavery and, and 
trail of tears and taking the Native Americans' land and things like this. And and so as you just kind of you probably went through this too, Craig, as you're kind of dealing with this kind of whirlpool of thought in your mind, you're trying to reconcile it through a Christian ethos, you're just coming up with very unsatisfactory answers. Because inevitably you have to compromise something that you know Jesus didn't actually ask me to do in order to support what was going on. And so, for example, the whole lesser of two evils things, you know Jesus would not support that. I know it. I knew it all along. But I'm making pragmatic decisions about how, and I'm making pragmatic decisions about winning and government policy. Well, none of that sat right with me. And, and then eventually I began to examine the philosophical basis or the very form of government we have, and the idea of the state. Once you start down that road, you're going to, if you're, if you're a decent thinker, you're going to end up an anarchist. There's no way out of it. Otherwise, you're just an immoral person. You, 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 want, you want power, or you kind of have a megalomania to you, and rule the rule people. So once, so once I started down that road, it was inevitable that I was going to be an anarchist, because that's actually the natural state of man. And unfortunately, there is a lie. I call it the Hobbesian lie. Now, I don't think Thomas Hobbes was intentionally lying. I don't. It, but you can tell a lie without intentionally lying. You just you told a, mis, a mistruth. So Hobbes creates his arguments called the state of nature, man in the state of nature. And his argument is essentially man in the state of nature is going to be at war with each other constantly. He is going to lead a sh short, uh, cold, dark, snobbish life. He's, that's the kind of life, brutish life he's going to live. And the only way to have man live any other kind of life is to have an absolute mind. He would call monarchist, but absolute government, a government that, um, controls the natural passions of man. And literally, Craig, for hundreds of years, we believed that. And as Christians, it kind of fits our, especially if you're reformed in your theology or if you're Calvinist in, the, in your theology and you believe in the total depravity of man, it kind of really feeds your soul. You're like, yeah, man is wicked. Yep, yep, absolutely. We're going we're gonna to kill each other and we're at war with each other because God said there is no good, not one. And so we then take that and put it into a political ethos. We come up with the conclusion, well, we got to have government to bridle man's natural passions to do evil things to each other, except, except this is, this is one of the great problems associated with this. Um, I started to examine my life over a six month period and began to really test the premise of the argument that man in the state of nature is going to kill themselves or kill each other. And not one time, in my six months of experience, did I ever have a time where my neighbor wanted to come out and pillage me? The people at Starbucks or, or Walmart wanted to take my wallet when I took it out to pay for the you know groceries I was buying. I, when I was driving down the road at 75 miles an hour, nobody was swerving into me trying to push me off the road. All these ideas of man constantly at war with each other never materialized. And I'm 61 years old. Then I started stepping back and saying, how many times has that ever happened in my life where somebody was trying to rape, murder, or pillage me? And then I found out the only people that want to do that usually have lights on top of their car or they have a title, you know, the IRS. They're the only ones that screw with my life. And so I, I defeated that part of the trip to anarchy. And then the final thing that put me over the top was 
kind of offering my own philosophical view of this. Does it make any sense for fallen man to rule fallen man? And of course, when you ask that premise, there's no logical, good answer, biblical answer that man should fallen man should rule fallen man. No. And one time God speaks very overtly about government, First Samuel 8. He's almost saying, you want government? Here, have it. You're going to choke on it because they're going to take this from you, this from you, because you rejected me as your king. You rejected me leading you. So all that came together and it became clear the state is evil. It is used by Satan. It is uh, a tool to eventually drive the gospel into the basement. And that's kind of where we are today. So I, I oppose the state any chance I get. That's that's awesome. Um, with my story, and I, and I think what attracted me to anarchy, and I think even even when I was a statist, even when I was still involved mm-hmm. with all that, you know, I started voting the first George W. Bush election. Mm-hmm. That's when I first got involved with it. But I've always been an individualist type person. I think I have. And even back then, I, I, I just wanted to I wanted to see people as an individual. And the state is all about collectivism. I think collectivism is completely evil. But when I started understanding anarchy and started understanding that it was about the individual, it helped me. And I, like I told you before we started recording, that once I could put anarchy with my faith in Christ, yes, it was easy. Yeah. I mean, it was such an easy transformation after that, because before then, I thought anarchists were crazy. Mm, I mean, we've always had a state, right? No, actually, no, we have not. And and just like you were referencing in 1 Samuel 8, we rejected God when we asked for another king. Right. He's our king. Why are we doing that as Christians? Why, you know, and I could go on probably for another hour about this. This has been a fantastic conversation. We didn't get into your article. <laughs> Who is right, God or Thomas Hobbes? This is a fantastic article. I want people listening to this to go look this article up and read it for yourselves. But I want to read something out of in your article, and I love this because you're talking about God. We were made in his image. Mm-hmm. Not like we look like him. But in the way he acts, and these are the things you said, we think because he thinks. We are merciful because he is merciful. We love because he loves. We are forgiving because he forgives. We welcome because he's welcoming. We care because he cares. We laugh because he laughs. We value justice because he values justice. We create because he creates. And I I love that so much, man. And the part where we laugh because he laughs, I don't think people understand just how big a sense of humor God has. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I could just look at my own life and it's like, that's not that funny, God. <laughs> but I think God's a snark. I think Jesus Christ is a snark. <laughs> you see sure, sure he was. Sure he but is. He has, he has a sense of humor. Yep. That's where we yep. get it from. Well, right. not everybody has a sense of humor, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very true. And I appreciate your kind words there and, and uh, on, on the article. It, it, it has helped me as much as anything. I needed, I needed to reason this through in my mind because I want to love God with my mind. I do. I want to, I want to go through the rigors of thinking and, and cultivate the mind. And I just pray that more Christians will reject experientialism 
and just understand the wonders of his word and and all the profound amounts of wisdom he gave us in those 66 books that really are completely capable of helping us live our lives in a way that glorifies him. Yeah, and I'm sorry we didn't get into it. I want people listening to this to go read this article because it's incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's very well put together, and the information in it is is just fantastic. Thank you. So it'll be linked to in in the show notes, and I want people to go read this. But yeah, man, I appreciate you uh, coming on and spending some time with me today. This has been a fantastic conversation, and. Go read this article, guys. Y'all have to read this. And if you're not familiar with Mark, check him out on Facebook. He's not going to make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's very intelligent and he has very thought-provoking posts. And I think that's what we need. I think we need to think. Like you said, we need to start thinking about our situation. And once we start thinking about it, maybe we can start moving past some of this garbage because it's there's a lot of garbage out there. A lot of garbage. Indeed. Thank you, brother, for having me on. I, I sincerely appreciate it. Yes, sir, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.